Hi, I'm Kirsten. I'm Andrew. And this is Most Foul. Welcome, everybody, to episode two of Most Foul. Welcome back. It's so good to be here. Kirsten, I cannot wait to talk to you about my research from this week and for this episode. I know. It's it's a really, I mean, you know, we've talked a little bit about this. We're talking about a case that there are literally entire podcasts that are all about this topic. In fact, I found some podcasts that were just about subsets of our topic, which I'll, I'll refer to later. But yeah, there's just so much information here. We could go on forever. And I think we said it last episode by giving the listener another sneak peek behind our process is we talk to each other as we're researching, but really make it a piece of not knowing what each other have written and kind of some of the details of what the sides that we're going to cover are so that it's exciting and fresh. Yeah, I just really, there are some crazy things that I uh, (laughs) dove into that I cannot wait to talk about. You've given me some little teasers, which, by the way, gave me quasi-nightmares the other night. (laughs) (laughs) I think you know what I'm talking about, and we'll get to that more later. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you know... Yeah, there's just, there's so much to go into. And now that we have one official episode uh, completed, a bonus episode, a mini episode, and some other things, and we've had a chance to listen to our our episodes, I am going to be other things besides excited this time. I'm going to be enthralled. I'm going to be pumped. I'm going to be jazzed because last time I was just excited about everything, which in the end is not very exciting. And I'm also going to have more responses than wow and whoa, (laughs) (laughs) as I'm giving you nonverbal or verbal, I guess, feedback during your part, Andrew. But the thing is, it's just what comes naturally. You, You tell me some of this wacky stuff and I'm just whoa I mean it's all I can think of but I'm gonna do better this time (laughs) come through the thesaurus (laughs) no I'll just if I were to try to do that I would just start using words incorrectly (laughs) (laughs) oh indubitably yes (laughs) I for sure know what that means and don't have to look it up (laughs) I look up everything. That I'm just obsessive that way. I, I want to be sure, absolutely sure. So I look up even words that I know that I know. But, you know, I want to know the etymology before I put it in an email. So, you know, that really helps me get a lot done at work. Oh, emails. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if this makes it in. But to share with the listener something that brought me a lot of joy and panic... Um, as we're talking about episode one and listening back, um, it was my texting mistake to you, which I am <laughs> pulling up on my phone right now. Oh, wow. We text a lot. So we should tell, I should have been yeah, more prepared. We should, have, we should tell listeners as you're searching for this in, in real time that we do, you know, as, as we're editing, we go back and forth and we give each other ideas and feedback. And so I had given Andrew a little bit of feedback uh, on how I thought he should be <laughs> mixing the episode. And so speaking of 
using the right words in your emails and re-editing. Normally, I am a good editor of my own texts and emails, but in our conversation, I went back and changed the way a sentence was written and then did not read before hitting send. So Kirsten suggested um, building in breaks into the episode with some of our slugs and plugs and teasers and that type of thing. And I did it, and I thought it sounded so good, and I texted her what I thought was... But your suggestion was so good. I am so happy with how it sounds. <laughs> and what I actually sent her was, I'm glad you liked your suggestion to add them in. <laughs> Which is the most passive aggressive thing I think anyone could write. <laughs> and I was just kind of like, you mad, bro? <laughs> No, it's all good. It's all good. Little glimpses in. But speaking back to episode one, um, episode one and bonus episode one, public execution and dissection. So I was having a conversation with my mom and, you know, as moms do, I, I was telling her about the story and how you talked about the public dissection. I was like, I cannot believe this. I've never heard of this. And she was like, well, I was just reading a book about that. <laughs> and... She was saying that because of kind of spiritual metaphysical beliefs at the time, that there was a a generalized thought process that if you were to like basically do an autopsy, so cut a body open, you would destroy the soul. And that is why they would do public dissections and dissections in this way. It wasn't necessarily to be like cruel and unusual. This was like one of the only opportunities that there were to do medical dissection for science because... It doesn't matter about destroying that person's soul because they're a serial killer. Gotcha. That makes so much sense now. And and actually, in retrospect, thinking back to the bonus episode, it kind of all comes together. So I don't want to give anything away. If you haven't if you haven't followed us on Patreon and, and you haven't gotten into that yet, check us out because this bonus episode is really interesting and and yeah, that that makes a weird sort of sense in the crime that we talked about during that episode. But also, what are the odds? You were reading a book about this? Like, what is going on? <laughs> well, you don't fall far from the tree, I guess. But yeah, I, I thought it was fascinating because, yeah, if you listen to episode one, our shock and horror at public dissections. But <laughs> I mean, it sort of makes sense. I mean, back in the day, people thought bloodletting was a good idea. They thought leeches... We're good. I don't know how much to get into. I was trying to think of identifiable information before I shared this, but I went to a very historic college and it had tours all the time. So I had to hear the tours every day um, just because there were tourists everywhere. And you would be walking the street and they'd be like, to your left, you'll see students on their way to class. And like literally a tram full of people would like look at you at your most disgusting eight in the morning sweatpants. (laughs) And sometimes they took photos. Oh, man. (laughs) But there was a big thing that it was one of the first buildings that had electricity. And so they had to hire an entire team of workers to turn the light switches on and off because people thought it would steal your soul or kill you. (laughs) So they got poor laborers whose entire job was to turn on lights. I'm fighting the urge to say, whoa, really hard right now. (laughs) (laughs) But whoa, I mean, that's crazy, the shit that people believed. (laughs) 
Yes. Well, they also thought that women would go blind if they looked at a business transaction, so... (laughs) But, you know, that's kind of like, did they really believe that, or was that just the marketing plan? Yeah, that was some shithead dude. That was the misogyny marketing plan. Nah, toots. (laughs) You can't... (laughs) This is... You can't look at the money. I'm helping you. You'll go blind. Oh, my gosh. And how does that relate to you'll go blind if you masturbate? I don't know. This sounds like the marketing plan conceived by the same group of people. Well, if we really want to get into the his- history of the Catholic Church's influence yeah, in maybe. society. <laughs> <laughs> or at least on uh, Western and American society. That's for another podcast, I think. Yes. We're still trying to gain <laughs> listeners. So one thing that happened this week, and I texted you because as I was going through my text, I saw and it reminded me, um, I had my villain origin story occur mm-hmm. this week. <laughs> <laughs> Where I like, listener, I like to get a little exercise, but in the form of a very long and meandering walk. And I listen to podcasts and I just live my best life, getting fresh air. Um, I don't have allergies, so I'm just blessed to have the outside at my disposal. So I'm walking, and this woman, who I already have a dislike for, <laughs> uh, because her husband once asked me how tall I was and if I play basketball, mm. she she pedaled back on her reclined, recumbent bicycle. So California, so California. <laughs> have feelings. And then she started moving her arms quickly and looked at me and said you need to pick up the pace oh hell no (laughs) no like I was six feet away from her I'm talking about a very wide paved trail (laughs) and so she for whatever reason just felt that was the appropriate thing to say that I needed to pick up the pace for no reason and then I saw her the next day she looked at me waved and laughed and I'm ready to get a stick And shove it in between her tires, folks. (laughs) I mean, I have to say, it takes a lot of gumption to say something like that to a six-foot-five man. (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) Not that you would ever hurt a fly, but she doesn't know that. No, I'm a very kindly soul and very afraid of confrontation. (laughs) So then under my breath, I'll just mutter, like, get a real bicycle. (laughs) (laughs) What possesses people, I sometimes wonder. Who knows? I mean, maybe in her mind she feels like she's building rapport. But it's, I don't need to go faster. Like, Of I, course not. I'm getting my steps. But maybe she sees it as, like, a joke. You know, she's joking to, to like, I don't know, get to know her neighbor better or something. I don't know. I'm going to vote for sociopath. <laughs> I will say, though, now you have, like, some small inkling of what it's like when women are told to smile constantly. And you just get that feeling in the pit of your stomach where you want to throat punch them. (laughs) (laughs) I had a very weird experience with an old boss who wasn't you. (laughs) (laughs) Who, in a conversation, was like, Andrew, you've got such a good smile. And then to another person in her office, she was like, don't you think he has a good smile? Like to another woman. And I was like, what do I do? What's happening right now? Of course I just went like, (laughs) (laughs) thanks boss. Well, yeah, because it's so bizarre. But yeah, people, men, men in general, 
I, I know my two examples are women, but I understand that that's a very uh, outsized proportion of just how horrific men are on the daily to women. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking of, you know, apropos of nothing, I was thinking of taglines for men the other day, and I'm like, men literally more likely to kill you than to bring you flowers on a first date. <laughs> True. Factual. <laughs> Horrifying. <laughs> Horrifying. <laughs> Especially as I'm, like, swiping left and right on Tinder. It's like, <laughs> which of you are murderers? <laughs> Well, you got to get to date three to figure that out. Okay, Andrew, now we're talking about the Zodiac this week. Are you ready to dive in? You've done some research on kind of San Francisco in that era and setting the scene. Do you want to start with that? Yeah, absolutely. Never miss a foul detail. Follow us at Most Foul Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. So... When I think of San Francisco in the 60s and 70s, it's like the summer of love, drum circles, flowers, drugs, but like the fun drugs. (laughs) (laughs) And like rationally, I understand that the city is at the epicenter of the counterculture movement that, I mean, totally changed America forever. But I have quote unquote hippies, free love, flowers. I guess I'm looking at it through rose colored glasses, just the way I envisioned the past, and there was a very dark and incredibly violent other aspect to the city. So there's a wonderful article in SF Gate by Andrew Chamings, Chamings that I got a lot of this information from. Also, shout out to Wikipedia, uh, <laughs> true ride or die. <laughs> um, so in San Francisco at the time, people were being terrorized by a run of horrific, high-profile violent crimes. So there was a string of up to 70 racially motivated murders that police called the zebra murders that were perpetuated by the self-proclaimed death angels, um, which was a small group of black Muslim serial killers in the San Francisco area. And criminology professor Anthony Walsh wrote in a 2005 article that the death angels may have killed more people in the early to mid 70s than all other active serial killers operating during that time combined. I just have to say it. Whoa. And I've I've heard it in passing, but I don't know anything about them, really. So I even in my notes here, it was like, I will, will be doing more research on this. Because mm-hmm. I was like, again, we're going to talk a bit about Zodiac's potentially outsized impact on the culture. It's like infinite stuff about Zodiac, the way it's uh, impacted society. But there's something like this group and these murders and... I just haven't heard it on podcast. It's really something that I don't know about, which could be my own ignorance. So I'm going to be doing more research. But at the same time, Jim Jones is gathering his cult in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's soon after they'll move their headquarters, which was on Geary Street. So they'll go to Guyana, uh, which will be the eventual death of 918 people through poisoned Kool-Aid. But uh, as I'm sure a lot of the readers know, We say, like, oh, you drink the Kool-Aid, but, like, your choice was to drink poison or to be shot to death. It wasn't really a choice of, like, we are all willingly doing this. So also, in the same time frame, um, the Symbionese Liberation Army was about to kidnap 19-year-old Patty Hearst from Berkeley. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then she would eventually join their ranks and help perpetuate their string of bank robberies and murder. Clearly, San Francisco was going through shit <laughs> in the time. Um, and then added into that mix is the terror of the Zodiac Killer. And sort of to put it into perspective, throughout the 70s, the homicide rate in San Francisco was in the triple digits. And that peaked in 1977 when 147 people were murdered. And as a contrast, in 2019, there were 41 homicides in the city. Wow, wow. And, and that's 41 with a way higher population. Right. So it's not even a one-to-one, 147 to 41. It's like an even lower percentage because the city's population has grown so much. Right. A very different city from the San Francisco of today. That's incredible. Well, that really sets the scene for what we're about to learn. It's it's a grisly time. These are grisly crimes, and we're going to jump into it right after we get back. Thanks for listening to Most Foul. If you've got a tip for a future episode topic or want to send us your own inciting incident for a mini episode, visit our website at mostfowlpod.com and write in. Today, as I said before, we're talking about the serial killer known as the Zodiac, who attacked seven confirmed victims in 1968 and 69, five of whom died. Now, before I really jump into talking about the crimes, I just want to talk a little bit about the Bay Area. Someone who has lived in the Bay Area, but also is not from the Bay Area. You know, when I came to this this time around, I had a totally different understanding of the crimes than I did you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago, 40 years ago when I first heard about them. And I think that is just knowing the area so much better than I had before. So, you know, when I first read about it, I really was under the impression that these all took place in San Francisco. They're often talked about as San Francisco crimes. And in fact, one of them did take place in the city. But I think a little context here is important. So the Bay Area is a gigantic area, and it's divided into several different sections. And so the Bay is in the center, and then there's an area north of the Bay called North Bay. Uh, There's an area east of the Bay called East Bay. Uh, There's an area south of the Bay called South Bay. And then there's the city, and then there's the part that connects the city to South Bay that's called the Peninsula. So... You know, in this context, and I'll go through, and as I speak about each crime, I'm going to talk about the town that they're in. And, you know, if you look at the website, mostfowlpod.com, you can see we have a map of the area. In the Bay Area, you know, you can't just think about things as the crow flies because two locations may be fairly close together, but because of the geography, both a mountain range and the bay itself, and then a river and a strait, they're bridges everywhere. There are tunnels that go through mountain ranges. And so you can be very close, but it can take you a long time to get different places, which gives you these kind of isolated pockets. Um, And it can feel very insular in those pockets. So for example, when I lived in the Bay Area, I lived in the East Bay and it felt just worlds away from the city. And in fact, once we had children, we almost never went into the city. It was a big outing, even though, you know, without traffic, it was only about 30 minutes away. Uh, But it just feels like a whole world away. And so as I talk through... um, the crimes. I'm going to try to give a little bit of geographic reference um, as I go. And then I also want to kind of give the disclaimer that, you know, we're not a procedural podcast, so I'm not doing a deep dive into the cases or even the suspects. There are tons of podcasts that spend entire series on all of the details, like I said before. And 
one thing that I'm going to focus on is the ciphers. There, there's a podcast that's just about the ciphers. Um, so, you know, again, check out the website. We're going to link to a lot of this material if you really want to take that deep dive. But for the purpose of this episode, you know, I'm not going to do that. There's also a really exhaustive 12 episode season of a podcast called Criminology, which is great. Their first season was all about Zodiac. Um, and so I'm going to call on one of their episodes um, a lot in this. But check them out for sure. So I'm going to give a briefish overview of the crimes for those listening who maybe have heard of the Zodiac Killer, (laughs) Ted Cruz, uh, but never really went any further in learning about the crimes. Uh, Then I'm going to shift into talking about one aspect of the crime that really resonates with me most, and that is the letters and ciphers the Zodiac sent to the authorities and newspapers and others um, in the immediate aftermath of the attacks and then for years afterwards. I'm also only going to be focusing on the four FBI-confirmed Zodiac attacks. So there are other crimes and communications that many believe to be the work of the same person, but in the interest of keeping this to an hour or so, I'm, I'm focused just on those four, okay? So I'm going to start with the first, again, uh, confirmed attack done by the Zodiac, or who, the, the man who later became known as the Zodiac Killer, And this attack is known as uh, the Lake Herman Murders. It took place in Benicia, which is in North Bay. It's right across the Carquina Strait. And I could actually look into Benicia from my house when I lived in California, which makes this feel kind of creepy. Again, this is information I didn't have when I first learned about the Zodiac. But Benicia feels pretty out of the way and very removed from San Francisco. It's a little kind of bedroom community not a San Francisco vibe at all. I've lived here almost nine years and I've never been to Benicia. You have, you've been through Benicia. Yes. But I've never been to Benicia. No. (laughs) Yes. There's, there's not a whole lot of reason to go to Benicia unless you know someone in Benicia. And I'm just going to say Benicia one more time. So in Benicia on December 20th, 1968, There were two high school students, Dave Faraday, who was 17, and Betty Lou Jensen, who was 16, and they were having their first date. And so they had originally planned to go to, I think, a play at the high school, but, you know, as teenagers are wont to do, they kind of changed their plans at the last minute. They, I don't know, did some other stuff, grabbed dinner, and then they went to a known kind of lover's lane um, out on the outskirts of town. And they were there, I think it was around 11, a car kind of pulled in and witnessed it. This is a lot of speculation based on crime scene evidence because there were no witnesses. But a car pulled in near to them, and they think that the man ordered them out of the car. David was shot in the head one time as he was climbing out of the car, And then at that point, they think that Betty Lou started to run away because she was shot five times in the back as she ran away and her body was found about 30 feet from the car. They both died at the scene. So, you know, at the time, this was obviously a terrible incident. It was very disturbing. Again, Benicia is a small a small town, a suburban community. So this was a very well publicized case. But at the time, it was it was thought to be random, and there was no kind of tie-in to anything bigger. Then, about six and a half months later, in Vallejo, the second attack took place. This one is known as the Blue Rock Springs murder, 
And again, Vallejo is in the North Bay, and it's only about four miles from the previous site. What's important to know is that Vallejo is more of a city than, than Benicia. It's a bigger town, and there's also a military installation there known as Mare Island. So that, that comes into play a little bit in the investigation. But it's kind of a different, has a little bit more urban vibe, um, more population. But they, they abut one another. And so this crime happened, again, only four miles away from the previous murder on the outskirts of Vallejo, kind of out in the middle of nowhere. A young mother named Darlene Farron, who was 22, and her friend Michael McGough, who was 19, were in a car parked in the parking lot of Blue Rock Springs Park. And this time there were some witnesses. So a witness saw a car kind of pull into the parking lot where they were parked, hesitate, and then drive away. And then they believed that that car came back several minutes later. Someone got out of the car with a flashlight and a gun and dazzled Michael and Darlene in the car by pointing the flashlight in their faces and then didn't ask them to get out, just shot immediately into the car. Shot five times and total, five times total. And some of those shots, though, went through Michael and into Darlene. So they both were shot multiple times. Um, The person started walking back towards the car to leave. And then this part really I find haunting, but a lot of the research says that the killer heard Michael moaning and went back and shot them both two more times. Now, Michael survived this attack, and so the only way I think anyone could know that the moaning was the reason that he went back and shot them more is if Michael told them. So that just, you know, it's I'm getting chills on my arms right now just talking about this because... Imagine living with that, knowing that it was your sounds and thinking, what if Darlene had lived? Has she not been shot two more times? I mean, it just, there's something about that detail that I find so, so hard to, hard to stomach. But as I said, Michael survived and Darlene was pronounced dead later at the hospital, I think that same day. Less than an hour after the attack, the Vallejo police received a call from a man who reported the crime and claimed responsibility for the attack and the murders of David and Betty and Benicia. The call was later traced to a payphone that ended up being just a few blocks from Darlene's home and the police station. So very close. I mean, it's just, yeah, this person, well, you know, we can get into speculation later, but it seems to have been local to this area. Yeah. This call is a first known contact of the Zodiac, although he didn't go by that name at that time. Um, but within a month of this attack, the killer began sending letters to the media. And we'll come back to that. The next murder is known as the Lake Berryessa murder. And the setting is technically in Napa, um, although it's outside of town limits. I think it's Napa County, but technically in Napa which I think a lot of people kind of know of from, you know, wine and Napa County and idyllic vacations. But this part of Napa County is fairly remote. But again, when I think of Lake Berryessa, I do not think of San Francisco. At this point, we're getting quite far from the city, really. When we look at Benicia and then Vallejo is like four miles west of, of Benicia, But then Lake Berryessa is, I didn't actually do the distance, but it's quite a ways to the northeast of both of those locations. And so 
This attack happened um, about two and a half months later in September of 1969. Again, we're still in 1969. And it was similar in that it was a couple, college students, Brian Hartnell, who was 20, and Cecilia Shepard, who was 22, but they weren't in their car. They were out having a picnic at the lake, and so they were on a little island that was kind of connected to the mainland by a little sand strip, and they were just out there having a picnic. Um, I couldn't find a time of day, but I think it was, you know, in the afternoon sometime, And perhaps because Michael had survived the previous attack in Vallejo, this time the killer wore that now very well-known black hood with the cross and circle symbol on the front. And he ordered them to the ground, and he kind of told them he only wanted to rob them. So he kind of lulled them into a sense of security. Although, you know, watching video interview of Brian later, he says immediately he thought he was going to die. So... But he used this lie to get them to comply, essentially. He had a gun. He had Cecilia tie up Brian with some strips of rope that he brought already pre-cut and everything. Um, But he realized, he went to check and realized he wasn't tied very tightly. So he tied them tighter, and then he tied up Cecilia. And then they had kind of a strange little interaction, Brian and the killer. And if you go to our website, mostfoulpod.com, there are links to all of this, and you can read Brian's kind of transcription of what what their conversation was. And then I think Brian kind of thought it was over and he turned his head to say something to Cecilia. And then that was the last thing he remembered. He stabbed him in the back. And so he stabbed him six times in the back and Cecilia 10 times in the front. And then he hiked back to the main road and drew the cross and circle symbol on Brian's car door where it was parked up in the parking lot, followed by Vallejo, 12 20, 68, 7 4, 69, September 27, 69, 6 30 by knife. So basically referencing his crimes um, and, and taking credit for them and identifying himself as, again, the killer who became known as the Zodiac. Later that evening, he called the Napa County Sheriff's Office and reported the attack and claimed responsibility. This time, it was a little later, though, because he drove about 25 miles before he called this in. But fortunately for particularly Brian, they they made a lot of noise during the attack, and a fisherman nearby heard them and came, came to help. And both Brian and Cecilia were conscious when deputies arrived, and Cecilia actually gave a detailed description of the attacker. Unfortunately, Cecilia lapsed into a coma in the ambulance on the way to the hospital, and she died two days later. Brian, however, survived the attack, and he, as I said, recounted the ordeal for the media while he was still in the hospital. Definitely check out episode notes and go watch this link. It's a little unsettling how composed he was, actually. I mean, remember, he was 20. 20, which... Now I feel like 20 is like you might as well be 12, you know? I mean, it's just like the way adults mature now compared to 50 years ago is so different. But he was 20. He had just been stabbed six times in the back and watched his friend murdered right in front of his eyes while he was tied up and unable to help. And he is cooler than I am when it when a movie ticket agent says, like, enjoy the movie. And I say, yeah, you too. Like, I totally <laughs> lose it. But he was just like totally cool. I mean, you got to watch this video clip. So then, obviously, the furor around all of this is is really growing. And then we lead into the last of the canonical murders, or the four that are confirmed to have 
have been committed by the Zodiac. And this one is called the Presidio Heights murder. And this is the one that actually does take place in San Francisco. So again, we're in North Bay, North Bay, and then Napa, which is technically North Bay. But I mean, you're, you're starting to like creep into like the hinterland between the Bay Area and the Sacramento area at that point. Like you're getting to the very outskirts. And now in October of 1969, we're, we're smack in San Francisco. And on the night of October 11th, a taxi driver named Paul Stein, who was 29, picked up the killer um, unknowingly near Union Square and drove him to the Presidio Heights neighborhood, which is only about a three-mile drive. When they arrived, the killer shot Paul in the head, point blank, took his wallet, his car keys, and a bloody piece of his shirt. And several witnesses saw the attack, and some even called the police while it was in progress. But there was an unexplained error, major side-eye, that saw the initial bolo issued for a black man. So, you know, this is something that at the time may have seemed unusual or inexplainable. I think now we know, like, that's just kind of the go-to. When you do a bolo, there's a violent crime in a city, and everybody's looking for a black man. So two San Francisco Police Department officers drove right past the killer and did not stop him, and it's because of this erroneous bolo that was put out. Ultimately, though, the witnesses were able to give a good description, and that is what was used to make the infamous sketch that everyone kind of knows of Zodiac. Initially, authorities thought this was a robbery gone wrong, but three days later, the San Francisco Chronicle received a letter from the Zodiac claiming responsibility, which included a piece of Paul's bloodied shirt. So that is the 30,000-foot view of the canonical Zodiac murders, which is a lot. I mean, it's still even like... The, the very high-level overview is a lot. Uh, now I want to shift over, though, to the part of this that really intrigues me, and it's the communications from the killer. And I don't know if this is because I work in communications, but I think that the key to the case lies here. And I don't just mean that his name is in, encoded in the messages, which was hinted at, he hinted at, or I think he actually came out and said in one of his ciphers, like, or one of his letters, if you solve the cipher, you'll have me. Um, and I don't, I don't mean that, but I mean, there's so much evidence here. I mean, just one of his letters was seven pages long, right? And so it, there's just so much information about the person who did this contained in these communications, in spite of his limited number of confirmed murders, which, I mean, I say that with all acknowledgement that one murder is too many murders, but when we're comparing him to other serial killers in particular, he has, as you said before, Andrew, an outsized notoriety, and I think it comes down to two factors. One is he was never caught, right? So the mystery, like, engages people. But I think the other thing is he was downright chatty Cathy in his communication strategy, and he really terrorized people in doing that. Yeah, so by sending letters to the news media, the police, and even his victims' families, he terrorized Northern California for years. His first communication was that phone call after the second attack in Vallejo, but after that he went on to call or write to claim responsibility for each subsequent attack. And I think that's kind of an important Thing to note. Then less than a month after the second attack and the third murder, on July 31st, he sent his first written communication. It was sent in three parts, one to the Vallejo Times-Herald, one to the San Francisco Chronicle, and the last to the San Francisco Examiner. The communications each contained a letter and one-third of the cipher. 
The letters were pretty much the same, but the three ciphers together comprised a 408-character puzzle and became known as Z408. Check out our episode notes on mostfoulpod.com or our Instagram at mostfoulpod to see images of not all the letters, but some of the key letters. You can see his handwriting and some of the ciphers. He threatened in his accompanying letter with this first cipher that if the newspapers didn't publish the ciphers on the front page of their papers the next day, he would go on a killing spree over the weekend. The Chronicle did publish their piece of the cipher the next day, but on page four, and with a quote from the Vallejo police chief asking for more details from the Zodiac to confirm the Zodiac's identity. The promised spree never happened, but the media coverage succeeded in raising the Zodiac's notoriety and scaring the bejesus out of people, especially in the North Bay, where all the attacks at that point had taken place. He sent a second letter on August 4th, in which he refers to himself as a Zodiac for the first time, and provides additional information to confirm that he is, in fact, the perpetrator of the Vallejo attack. The three-part cipher from the first set of letters was decoded a few days later by a couple in Salinas. It read, I like killing people because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all. To kill something gives me the most thrilling experience. It is even better than getting your rocks off with a girl. The best part of it is that when I die, I will be reborn in paradise, and all the lone or stray people I have killed will become my slaves. I will not give you my name because you will try to slow down or stop my collecting of slaves for my afterlife. And then the third cipher ends with, I think it's 18 characters that have never been solved. So it's a string of letters, but no one can figure out what it means to this day. He wrote again two days after the murder of Paul Stein, including a piece of Paul's shirt in with the letter. This letter read, This is the Zodiac speaking. I am the murderer of the taxi driver over by Washington Street and Maple Street last night. To prove this, here is a bloodstained piece of his shirt. I am the same man who did in the people in the North Bay area. The San Francisco police could have caught me last night if they had searched the park properly instead of holding road races with their motorcycles seeing who could make the most noise. Now, I'm pausing what his letter said just to note here. You know, he's making it clear that he was there watching them as they were searching for him. So he's trying to, I think, again, generate fear and also taunt them. Yeah. The letter continues... The car drivers should have just parked their cars and sat there quietly waiting for me to come out of cover. School children make nice targets. I think I shall wipe out a school bus some morning. Just shoot out the front tire and then pick off the kitties as they come bouncing out. Which, I mean, this is just the equivalent of pressing the panic button, right? I mean, mentioning targeting kids on a bus has a way of freaking people the fuck out. Yeah. Naturally. On October 20th, someone claiming to be the Zodiac called the Oakland Police Department and demanded that Effley Bailey or Melvin Belly appear on a local morning show. Unbelievably, Belly actually did it. And I think this really speaks to how gripped people were with fear at this time that, you know, a very well-known lawyer like this would just go on a morning show waiting basically for the Zodiac to call. And he used that fear to manipulate people and demonstrate his power. 
So while Belly was on the show, someone claiming to be the Zodiac called in a few times, and they arranged to meet in Daly City, which, again, for context, this is, like, the south side of the city starting on the peninsula area. So a a completely other part from where most of the crimes had taken place, and far away even from where the final crime had taken place. But unsurprisingly, the Zodiac no-showed. On November 8th, he sent a card known as the Dripping Pen card with a new cipher. And you can, again, go to our website, go to Instagram, and see a picture of this, and you'll see why it was called the Dripping Pen card. This time, the cipher was in one part, and it became known as Z340 because it contained 340 characters. Incredibly, this cipher took over 50 years to solve, being cracked just last December by a team of three amateur sleuths and code breakers from around the world. Now, if you listen to episode 11 of Criminology, the entire episode is about the ciphers, and they have a guest who is, is a code breaker, is, is someone who does this, I think, for a living. And he talks about the different types of ciphers, and one thing that he mentions and why this one was so difficult to solve was that it wasn't a one-to-one. So there were, I think, something like 40 different characters, and so the thinking is that some of the letters had more than one replacement. So, you know, I think there were something like a billion possible solutions to this based on how many characters were in this new one. There's speculation that, you know, he was a little bit embarrassed that this, you know, crossword-loving couple from Salinas had been able to solve his cipher very quickly. And so the second one he made much, much harder, and it took all of this time uh, to solve. And so this one reads... I hope you were having lots of fun in trying to catch me. That wasn't me on the TV show, which brings up a point about me. I am not afraid of the gas chamber because it will send me to paradise all the sooner because I now have enough slaves to work for me where everyone else has nothing when they reach paradise. So they are afraid of death. I am not afraid because I know that my new life is life will be an easy one in paradise death. And so the end of that kind of gives an example of what also made the solving of this very difficult is that he had some grammatical and spelling errors in these. And so that gets translated through. But of course, when people are looking to solve, they're not thinking of of spelling mistakes or understanding how someone might misspell a word. And so as they're looking for matches to patterns, you know, that adds a layer of complexity. As a conspiracy weirdo, I'm like, well, maybe he lived in paradise and misspelled it on purpose. Ooh, you just blew my mind. (laughs) It's like, oh, well, they'll never think I live in paradise, California, if I can't spell paradise. And he keeps, Mm. I mean, he's so full of himself. Like, it'll send me to paradise. Nothing when they reach paradise. I don't know. Maybe he lived there. Maybe. Oh, I like that. New conspiracy dropping today. (laughs) (laughs) We need to get on the Reddit board right now. So then on November 9th, 1969, the Zodiac sent another letter known as the bus bomb letter, a seven-page diatribe in which he taunts police, refutes so-called lies he claims that the authorities are sharing about his crimes, and details his plans for the future, including a bus bomb to kill school children, which is where... The name of this letter comes from. And he also mentions a plan to start killing anonymously. And this, I think, is in response to 
the lies that police are saying about him in his mind, right? So he can't control what police are saying, so he's going to start killing anonymously, meaning he's going to make his killings look like accidents or look like the work of other people. And this is really chilling because there are no more killings officially attributed to the Zodiac after this time. So did he stop killing or did he just make good on his promise to make his killings look like random accidents? I mean... Again, like, the hair on the back of my neck is standing up right now. Well, and knowing other killers, it, it's hard to believe that someone like this would just stop killing. Right. Very much so. There were more letters to follow throughout 1970 and into 1971, including more ciphers. And one of the more notable ones came on June 26, 1970, which consisted of a letter with a 32-character cipher which supposedly led to a bomb he had hidden and a commercial map was included with his cross and circle symbol. Um, But nothing ever came of these promises of bombs and killing children, at least not that anyone has tied to him. And then he goes silent until 1973 or 74, uh, which I think most folks looking into the Zodiac feel is important because it could help identify a person or it could help confirm a timeline at least, you know, Mm -hmm. so... Some of the suspects who have been mentioned, it's mentioned that, oh, he was in the military during this time or he was in prison during this time. And, you know, and so that's one way I think that people feel like they might be able to confirm or at least reinforce the theory. And and then the communications pick up again in 1974 until they kind of trickle and peter out like in the early 2000s. But, you know, some of these are disputed. They're not all attributed to him. So really, it becomes kind of difficult as time goes on knowing what what was him and what was not. But um, I do want to shout out the folks at ZodiacCiphers.com who have compiled an incredible site. They have details on all of these communications, um, including ones that are suspected, things that go back before the first canonical Zodiac crime. So, I mean, it's just it's a it's a boon of information about this. But yeah, I mean, you know, this part to me is so interesting because, again, you can't not reveal so much of yourself in this much communication. It's just impossible. But even with this, you know, he he still is unknown. So, Well, and like you said in the beginning, the communications, the fear mongering, being unsolved, it all sort of contributes to this thing that has made Zodiac... Uh, one of the articles I read called him second to Jack the Ripper. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, we have five confirmed murders that have been linked. And really it is this persona, this outsized, I don't even know what you would call it, like need for attention, fear mongering, the way he worked the press, the way he worked the police that created this mythos around him to this mm-hmm. day. Yeah, and it goes back to what you were saying before. Was the communication a part of his compulsion, or was it part of a smokescreen? And he really is a master criminal and was using this to deflect and, you know, send police on a wild goose chase. And I think that part is still unknown as well. Yeah, I mean, I don't have anyone to credit because it was a very weird forum, but ever since I read it, I can't stop thinking that Zodiac had almost nothing to do with San Francisco proper. 
and mm-hmm. that possibly even the killing of the cab driver was so out of character of the other murders and the fact that he took the shirt as like hard proof. The mm-hmm. fact that two of the newspapers were San Francisco proper newspapers. Of course, they covered the full bay, but two San Francisco-based papers almost as a way of hiding the fact that he was actually in Vallejo or Benicia or out further in the East Bay. And it worked, theoretically. Yeah, agreed. I mean, I think that there's so much to say about the fact that his M.O. suddenly changed so dramatically, going from couples to an individual. You know, he was he was kind of chaotic in in his manner in that he did use gun guns and knives from the beginning. Um, so the gunshot in the San Francisco case wasn't, you know, out of out of the ordinary. But it being a single person, it being just, you know, in, in the course of daily life, not not kind of out out in the middle of nowhere, I guess. It was just so different from from the other cases. So I think you're right. I think that the shirt was a very intentional act because without that shirt, I'm not sure that people would have believed that it was the same person. The MO was so different. Yeah. So I don't know. I also read maybe it's a police officer and that they knew that Napa and Berryessa was going to be the San Francisco police and Vallejo Benicio was going to be the Vallejo police and the cab Mm -hmm. murder was going to be San Francisco and knowing that they weren't going to communicate with each other. So, and especially after the Golden State Killer comes out as being a cop, it's like, well, it's not impossible. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think anything's off the table with this one. And the thing that I just keep coming back to is, you know, was this person very, very smart or very, very lucky or very, very in the know, i.e. a police officer or someone with police training? You know, the thing we chatted about this a little bit uh, offline was, you know, someone who can create a cipher that is not broken for 50 years. And I mean, now we have computer programs and AI to help us figure out ciphers, and it still was unable to be decoded until last year. So that to me says this is someone of some intellect. On the other hand, there are all of these typos and grammatical errors that you would think, you know, someone with kind of a basic education would would know. Um, and we talked back and forth. I also am not an amazing <laughs> speller. <laughs> I feel so attacked. <laughs> and can attribute most of my good spelling to spell check, but still like paradise and forest and just some kind of simple words, you know? So again, was this a ploy to, to make him seem less smart than he was? Because again, to me, the, the, the indicator that cannot be refuted is this person created a cipher that took 50 years to crack. Yeah. There's no getting around that basic fact. But yeah, I would be just from the compulsory investigation, like my own investigation, I would be shocked if Zodiac was a San Francisco city resident. Yeah. Agreed. A San Francisco person would have no reason to know the back roads of Benicia or Vallejo. And not that he's not smart, but, like, what a fucking loser. I, <laughs> some of the, like, the things he wrote, like, like obviously it was successful, but just the way he wrote in his ciphers and letters, like, ugh, it's like a really bad cosplay or something. Yeah. 
the thing that I keep coming back, you know, this is our second full episode and, and it's also historical. It's not as historical as episode one, but you know, we're going back into the past a little bit and I'm struck by some of these scenes. And of course you'll get into later movies that, that, um, depict some of these scenes, but as you imagine them in your mind and they call to mind some real like tropes of movies and, and shows about killers, right? So like the couple on Lover's Lane and some of these things. And I'm just struck by how much of this kind of seeps in, right? And becomes, oh yeah, well that's a thing. Like killers killing people on Lover's Lane is a thing. And it's kind of in people's consciousness. And it's like, well, is it a thing or was it just this time and it was so well known and well publicized and and everything kind of came from there and in the 60s and listeners can write in if you are experts and know about this but so I was thinking to myself like did they even know that criminals were like hardcore inserting themselves into like they might be at the crime scene like was that even known in the 60s and I don't really know. So if a, if a listener knows, write in and tell us. But I was thinking that all these things that seem like tropes, like you were saying, like, were they tropes in the 60s? Or was this brand new nightmare information? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So listener, let us know if you were if you were cognizant in the 60s and not on lots of feel good drugs. Uh, Mostfellpod at gmail.com. Let us know. So I think after the break, I'll jump into the ways and some of the very interesting ways in which Zodiac has impacted our culture. Yeah, I'm pumped. Thanks for listening to Most Foul. If you've got a tip for a future episode topic or want to send us your own inciting incident for a mini episode, visit our website at mostfowlpod.com and write in. So we've already discussed it, but Zodiac has what I consider an outsized impact on culture to other killers of the time. It's just such a heavy hitter because of the way he built this fear in the public persona. And so, like you, Kirsten, described, the games he was playing with the media and the public, in a way, and I saw this on several articles, several message boards, it was like, oh, he's a copycat of the Riddler from the Batman comics. And there are references, like there are a lot of references and captions where it's like, Zodiac knew about pop culture. I mean, he was obviously alive and he referenced pop culture in some of his letters, some of his things. So it's like not even a far stretch to think that he saw a character like the Riddler in a comic and was like, oh, this is who I'll be. Mm -hmm. So but that plus the constant threat, it all merged together to create this larger than life persona. So with that said, I wanted to start with movies and movies started like right away, (laughs) which I I don't know how fast movies get made, Yeah, but it seems very quickly. So in 1971, there were three things. Wow, that is, yeah, that's fast. So we got the movie The Zodiac Killer. We got a, a horror porn called The Zodiac Rapist. And we got Dirty Harry, all in 1971. So... Starting with the first one, The Zodiac Killer was directed by a man named Tom Hansen. And in 2012, he revealed in an interview that production of the film was motivated by an elaborate plot to catch the killer, who Hansen believed would not be able to resist attending the premiere. Oh my god. Yeah, when I was telling you, I was like, I cannot wait to tell you the stuff that I found. 
Um, this is a big piece of that. That sounds ripped out of a plot of, of a, of a, I don't know, a show. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously it didn't work, but what an ingenious idea. So on opening night, the screening took place at San Francisco's RKO Golden Gate Theater. And that was April 17th, 1971. And audience members were asked to write their answers to a prompt. I think the Zodiac kills because and drop those entries into a large box to enter a raffle to win a Kawasaki motorcycle. Um, And so the unsuspecting moviegoers had no idea that there was someone inside of the box comparing handwriting samples to the Zodiac letters. Uh, And there were men, including the film's cast, waiting in the wings to apprehend and interrogate anyone whose handwriting caused a red flag. Wait, they were going to use the actors to apprehend the killer? Mm Mm-hmm. Actors, (laughs) the article I read referred to them as goons. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, including some of the male actors from the movie that were there at the premiere, but they were also there to apprehend and interrogate anyone who's writing matched. So it didn't work, but what an incredible idea. Yes. And also, listener, such good pre-COVID cocktail party banter. <laughs> I mean, fascinating story. And I've listened to a lot of Zodiac stuff, and I'd never come across that. It didn't work, but... Really strong idea, in my opinion. Wow. I'm, I'm still taking this in. Okay. And then another piece, which I was reticent to jump into the um, horror pornography conversation. Um, <laughs> but then it, the story was so interesting. Um, I'll spare basically all of the details, which are <laughs> horrible. Um <laughs> Except, just for fun, some character names. Oh, okay. Policewoman, Secretary with Apple, Brunette in Garden, Secretary with Garter Belt, and Blonde in Pool. <laughs> but, so the title character, the Zodiac Rapist, and this horrible thing that was created, was played by prolific American pornographic actor John Holmes. Uh, which I had a lot of laughs reading the first part of his Wikipedia page if listeners are interested, but beware, content warning. Um, But I bring it up because he himself was the subject of several books, a lengthy essay in Rolling Stone, two feature-length documentaries, and was the inspiration for two Hollywood movies, Wonderland and Boogie Nights. Mm. Wonderland was based on his alleged involvement in the Wonderland murders in 1981. Um, He was charged with committing the four murders, but was acquitted on all charges except for contempt of court. And then just one last interesting tidbit before we jump into Dirty Harry was that that trial was also a landmark in American history trial procedure because it was the first in which videotape was introduced as evidence. Oh, wow. So just a random connection. This porn actor who happened to play the Zodiac in this awful film film that's generous um (laughs) was also the inspiration for boogie nights and the movie wonderland and was arrested for the wonderland murders just i I was as i was reading it i was like well i feel weird talking about this porn but also what a bizarre connection point as well super bizarre and this is the thing that gave me the nightmares (laughs) so on to dirty harry um i watched the movie for the first time this week and i had a lot of feelings 
I would say it's complicated. It's a well-made movie that certainly impacted how movies are made. Um, but it's also a right-wing, slightly fascist fantasy film. <laughs> um, and, of course, I was like, okay, well, I'm watching this in 2021. But as I went back to critics, it was the same. So Roger Ebert gave the film three out of four stars and called it very effective at the level of a thriller, but denounced its moral position as fascist. <laughs> and Siskel gave it four stars praising it as one of the great police thrillers of motion picture history. But he also thought that the film's message was dangerous. So from a film history perspective, I'd say it's worth watching. And honestly, from a societal level, I also think it's worth watching today to see how this type of racist, police vigilante, white officer was held up to be a hero in these movies. And I think in some ways it can even help understand some of the ways in which we've gotten to where we are right now in our society's issues. But all that said, Dirty Harry was selected for preservation by the National Film Registry and the Library of Congress. It's on a ton of best movies of all time lists. And of course, in an absolutely bizarre way, we wouldn't have the misquoted line, <laughs> you've got to ask yourself a question, do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? If it weren't for the Zodiac Killer... That's incredible to think of. Um, plus, Dirty Harry supposedly inspired real-life crime. The Faraday School kidnapping, where two armed men in Australia kidnapped a teacher and six school children in Victoria. They demanded a million-dollar ransom. The government agreed to pay, but the children managed to escape, and the kidnappers were arrested and jailed. Yikes. Even the movie Dirty Harry had a copycat killer. So there were other movies loosely based on the Zodiac Killer. We'll go very quickly. The Exorcist 3 in 1990, Disguised Killer 2000, Zodiac Killer 2005, The Zodiac 2006, Curse of the Zodiac 2007, David Fincher's Zodiac also 2007, which I'll talk more about, um, mm -hmm. Seven Psychopaths in 2012, and Awakening the Zodiac in 2017. So movies galore. Yeah. Uh, but jumping back to David Fincher, um, so his Zodiac financial and critical success, so much so that a 2016 critics poll conducted by the BBC placed it as the 12th greatest film of the 21st century. So I watched it in 2007, and I watched it again this week. Mm -hmm. And it holds up. I mean, I don't know what I expected, but it's long. It's a long movie, <laughs> but it does hold up. Um, the scene with the stabbing at Lake Berryessa haunted me since 2007, and that was just as difficult to watch this time. And so, of course, when I watched it the first time, I had no idea what Lake Berryessa is, where it's located. And now that I've lived here and I've been there, it had like an extra chill factor to it. Because, mm -hmm. I don't know, we inherently do kind of feel safe especially in the daylight at a like state yes. park recreation area. It, it I mean, feels safe. I don't because I, I am into true crime, but one, I can see how one would. Yes. One might <laughs> feel safe. Um, so knowing how influential the movie is, I dove a little deeper into the screenwriter and the director to see what drew them to the film. So James Vanderbilt, the movie's screenwriter was, a uh, true crime fan, just like us. 
He read Robert Gray Smith's book, Zodiac, in high school and became fascinated by the folklore surrounding the Zodiac. And he got the opportunity to meet Gray Smith and decided to adapt that novel into a script. And luckily for us, he did, because it's a great movie, which as someone with a love for true crime and major crushes on Jake Gyllenhaal and Mark Ruffalo... (laughs) Mark it was like, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I am the demographic for this. <laughs> um, but then, of course, the movie was directed by David Fincher, himself a Bay Area native who was raised in Marin. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, this is also really fascinating. So he was seven when the killings began and internalized that as a child. And so I got this quote from a New York Times article where he said... I remember coming home and saying the highway patrol had been following our school buses for a couple of weeks now. And my dad, who worked from home and who was very dry, not one to soft pedal things, turned slowly in his chair and said, Oh yeah, there's a serial killer who killed four or five people who calls himself Zodiac. He's threatened to take a high-powered rifle and shoot out the tires of a school (sighs) bus and then shoot the children as they come off the bus. So, father of the year. (laughs) Oh my god. And I mean, I guess in the 60s, parenting was a little different than it is today. I feel like this is going to be a sub-theme of our, of our podcast now, is like, shit was different then. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and so Fincher called the Zodiac the ultimate boogeyman, and it's no surprise that he was drawn to the project. And he added that it was a very interesting and weird time to grow up and incredibly evocative. I have a handful of friends who are from Marin County at the same time, the same age group, and they're all very kind of sinister, dark, sardonic people. And I wonder if Zodiac had something to do with that. So with that in mind, I don't think it's that much of a reach to say that in a weird way, all of the works that Fincher's created have at least been influenced a tiny bit by Zodiac. And honestly, when you consider... Seven, Fight Club, Panic Room, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Gone Girl, TV shows like House of Cards and Mindhunter. It's not that surprising. No, it all kind of makes sense. And so, in a way, his inciting incident was actually living in the area at the time. Mm-hmm. And the way his dad uh, <laughs> did not hide or sugarcoat anything. <laughs> wow. So, aside from the movies... Zodiac has been featured in a ton of music, uh, which you can listen to on our Spotify playlist that'll be linked in the episode description. Um, Unsurprisingly, it's a lot of death metal, punk metal, Japanese horror punk, German electronic (laughs) body music, doom metal, death rock, and the Grateful Dead. (laughs) (laughs) What an eclectic selection. Yes. Something uh, tells me that our our Spotify playlist is going to be a little dark. The, yeah, the weirdest playlist anyone's ever <laughs> listened to. <laughs> a little Sgt. Pepper's, a little German whatever that was. I yeah. can't even remember. it. Electronic body music. <laughs> yes, <laughs> whatever that is. Um, so over on the TV front, Zodiac has also made quite a few appearances. Uh, Nash Bridges and Psych have had episodes and recurring characters based on him. Uh, in the show Heroes, the character Siler, which was played by Zachary Quinto, is loosely based on the Zodiac. Um, mm. Procedural shows like, or not all procedural, but Medium, Criminal Minds, even into like Riverdale. Criminal Minds. 
yeah, Criminal Minds like owes its existence to the Zodiac. They there's an episode that is all about a school bus being taken that is basically just taking his threats and yeah. Anyway, I've watched way too much Criminal Minds. <laughs> they have a whole recurring serial killer character that's based on him too through the show. Um, even American Horror Story, several references in hotel and cult seasons. Also, they recreated the stabbings at Lake Berryessa in the freak show season. So, all over TV in a lot of different ways. So, like, horror shows, superhero violent shows, comedies. Like, it really runs the gamut in the TV space of all of the ways that Zodiac has been written into plots. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on literature, because I found 15 books about the killings, and I'm sure there's a ton more. But just the literature space is filled. Fiction, nonfiction, yeah. all sorts of things. Video games, though. Zodiac has inspired several video games. Um, a character in 2007's Manhunt 2 is modeled after the composite sketch of the killer. Um, the main antagonist in 2010's Cause of Death is largely inspired by him. Watch Dogs 2 features a mission where the protagonist has to find the Zodiac Killer and solve his mystery. Uh, 2017 game Serial Cleaner features a player character hired by a copycat killer to clean, clean up a crime scene similar to Lake Berryessa. And in that game, the character takes the copycat's hood as a memento. Mm. Uh, most recently in 2020, a game called This is the Zodiac Speaking came out, and it has players taking on the role of journalist Robert Hartnell, who's based in re- on the real-life Brian Hartnell, um, who survived the stabbings. And I read an article in NME magazine about video games and real-world crimes being a step too far. Mm-hmm. And the article asserts that Uh, asserted that watching TV and movies, listening to podcasts about true crime is different from living inside of the real-life tragedies in a video game format, and especially when the families of the victims are still alive. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure that entire topic could have a dissertation in and of itself, but I felt like it was important to include. Yeah. And then lastly, because I'd be remiss to talk about the Zodiac Killer in pop culture and not mention Ted Cruz... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The Ted Cruz Zodiac meme first widely circulated in 2015 and can be tracked back to 2013. So I love the internet and I hate Ted Cruz. So I was a person sharing the meme as well. (laughs) Um, It blew up again in February 2016 in some of the Republican debates. And in that month, is Ted Cruz the Zodiac killer was the second highest Google autocomplete for is Ted. (laughs) Wow. Oh, my God. Uh, So, obviously, Ted Cruz couldn't have been the Zodiac, uh, and not because he was hiding in Mexico, but because (laughs) he wasn't born yet. Which, I mean, that little tidbit blew me away in and of itself, because I thought he was, like, 60, and so when I found out that he was actually younger than me, I was shocked. So, that's just my little take on that meme. (laughs) Yeah, the way the gremlins (laughs) age is very frightening. (laughs) Um, but NPR wrote that, you know, even though he, it couldn't be him, the meme captures, quote, a feeling they have about Cruz. They think he's creepy and they want to point that out as clearly as they can, end quote. (laughs) 
But truth aside, it hasn't stopped people. Um, there are several self-published books on Amazon about Cruz being the Zodiac killer, including romantic ones. So apologies to the listeners who all had to pause to vomit. But so it's funny because it's Ted Cruz, but it's not all fun and games. A February 2016 public policy poll asked registered voters in Florida ahead of the Republican primary if they believed Cruz was the Zodiac killer. 10% said yes, and 28% said they were not sure. And remember, he wasn't born. <laughs> and so I guess that's a blinding indictment of America and the memification of politics. Nightmare. Nightmare fuel. It's funny. I'm speechless. It's so funny. I love people holding up the memes at his rallies or the people holding up a picture of Kevin from the office that just says, is this you? (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so 10% saying yes and 28% of Republican voters saying they weren't certain, even though it's like verifiable fact that it could not have been him. Truly horrifying. That is horrifying. And so that reaches the end of my research. It's just truly astounding how much media and pop culture has been influenced by uh, this pathetic piece of shit, whoever the fuck he was. Yeah, it is. I, I mean, I think Fincher nailed it. He He's a boogeyman, you know? And, and I think it is that combination, like we talked about earlier, of never having been caught and really excelling at freaking people the fuck out with those creepy letters and ciphers. And, well, and like you said, he... I mean, I hate, I don't want to assume, but he probably had no intention ever of doing anything with the school bus. But he was like, oh, I know how to scare the shit out of these people. Well, yeah. And I think going back to your kind of pet theory that, you know, a lot of what he did with the media was to deflect from his real identity. I mean, when you put people in panic mode, you know, your prefrontal cortex, I mean, I, I'm not a scientist, but I've read articles about how, like, when you're in fight or flight, like, your executive functioning is impaired, right? And so I think he threw the whole area into panic mode, and it's going to make the search for him that much harder because people are are not thinking clearly. And, and even police who are trained to function in those kinds of situations when you're thinking about a bus full of dead kids, like, you can't be doing your best work, you know? Mm-hmm. It's crazy. At first, I didn't know how we were going to do it. Something is larger than life as Zodiac. But listeners, I hope you enjoyed it. The research has been fascinating. And I mean, truly just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. So if you're interested, you know, go to our website, mostfoulpod.com and check out the episode notes uh, because we put all of our sources and there's so much that you can dive into. You know, we're just really scratching the surface and trying to take a, a little bit different spin on things by looking at the culture and, and looking at the communications that he did. But there's so much out there. And listener, as always, we appreciate the hell out of you. Absolutely. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review our show. It really helps us. Plus, we'll read five-star reviews on an upcoming episode. You can get exclusive behind-the-scenes content, discounts at our merch store, and more if you head over to patreon.com slash mostfoulpod. This has been a Facts from Janet production.